All right, well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. How's everyone doing? Doing okay? All right, well, good, good. And we had a couple of people who said they were all right. Um, if you are a guest, let me say a special welcome to you. My name's Joe, and I'm the lead pastor here. We are delighted to have you with us, so special welcome to you. And I want to say a special thank you to uh, all the folks who jumped in this week and helped uh, transform the place into... Uh, Christmas, you know, winter wonderland. So thank you for all of you who jumped in and helped with that this week. And just kind of a heads up on that, our Christmas Eve service, my favorite service of the year, five o'clock on Christmas Eve right here. Um, Just carols, uh, a lot of scripture, candles. Uh, It's just a great time. So let me encourage you to be here five o'clock Christmas Eve night and bring a friend and probably come early uh, because it's usually uh, packed. So Make sure you get here a little bit early, my favorite night of the year. Um, This morning we sang one of my favorite songs, which is Come Thou Fount. We just finished singing it, and it has a line in it um, that goes like this. And actually it's really interesting if you look up kind of the writer behind it. It's a guy named Robert Robinson. He wrote it in 1757, two years after he was converted under the um, ministry of a guy named George Whitfield, who's a fascinating character if you read about him as well. But anyhow, Robert wrote these lines. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And in a lot of ways, that's the warning that comes out of our text this morning in 1 Samuel chapters 10, 11, and 12. It's a warning about our proclivity to wander away from Christ, about how Christians, I'm not, I'm not even talking to people who maybe don't know Christ yet, but Christians, those who have repented and believed the gospel, they've you know, trusted by grace through faith in Christ's work, how they, how we, how I am so prone to wander from the God I love and run headlong after sin. Because the story that we have before us this morning as we're continuing our series through 1 and 2 Samuel is the story of David and Bathsheba. A shocking story where King David, a man after God's own heart, Okay, a man that we have watched be so patient. We've seen him be uh, so righteous in so many ways. Even last week, as John preached, he showed honor to a guy named Mephibosheth, a guy who was shamed in that culture because of his disability. Bosheth actually means shamed. He showed him honor. And so we've got King David, this great, magnanimous, generous, and righteous king. This week, chapter 11, giving in to sin and then watching it and willfully making it snowball from coveting to rape slash adultery to murder. And it's shocking. This is King David. And it should shock us. And it should scare us a little bit because if this can happen, not just happen to, but if David can carry this out, 
didn't happen to him. He did this. If he can do this, it can happen to anyone in this room. And so I was shocked. I mean, it's a shocking story. But as I studied this week, that wasn't the only thing in these three chapters I was shocked by. I was also shocked afresh at the grace of God. Because God comes after David. He doesn't leave David to his, you know, his own self-destruction. David endures, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book, consequences for his actions. But God comes after him. He pursues him with a ferocious and crushing grace. But one that forgives and leads to repentance. And so it is truly a shocking story of of, of sin and of grace. And it's my prayer this morning that we would feel this shock. And so if you want to take notes, I'll just go ahead and give them to you from the get-go. It's my prayer this morning that we would feel and be shocked by the ease with which anyone can fall. This is King David. Anyone. Be shocked by the ease with which anyone can fall. And then number two, be shocked by the radical and crushing grace of God. Be shocked by the radical and crushing grace of God. Of God, So that's where we're going to go. Those are your notes ahead of time. So let's just jump into it and look at it. We're going to be 1 Samuel chapters 10, 11, and 12. We're going to begin reading in chapter 11. This is on page 262 in the black hardback Bibles that are around you. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of those and open it up and read along. You will be helped by following along. While you're getting there, just kind of context, chapter 10, what's going on is Israel is at war with the Ammonites. This is not a war that they started, but it is one that they will finish. And so they're at war with the Ammonites. And so in the midst of that, chapter 11, verse 1, read along with me. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah which is like a capital city. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and this woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is, that, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of his servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. David wanted him to go down there and sleep with his wife, so kind of cover up what had happened. But Uriah is more righteous than David in this moment. And so David inquires... 
Why did you not go down to... When they told David, verse 10, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah, they dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of the Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to live with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And he made a covenant not to do that at war. And he's like, I'm not going to break my covenant to my troops just because of this. And then David said to Uriah, we'll remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And so David goes with plan B here, which is really just a plan A again, but just let me get him slammed. Then maybe he'll go through with it. Verse 13, and David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. He passed out on the couch, couldn't even get down to the house. So that failed. Plan C. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah, the Hittite, also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. Skip down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is perhaps the most major league understatement in the Bible. Literally, it it reads, what he had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And this is David. And so again, it's a shocking story. Shocking in both its contents, like what happens here, coveting, adultery, slash rape, murder, and in who did it. This is David. Like we might expect this of Saul, as we've seen Saul in the past, but not David. David loves God. David is a man after God's own heart, and yet here we are. And so again, let this serve as a warning about how suddenly and fatally any one of us can fall. I mean, wrong situation, wrong circumstances, wrong timing, and anyone can fall. And so we must not be complacent. We must not be lazy. We must not think, you know, I'm strong. I don't need to worry about anything. I don't need to maybe set up some boundaries in my life. I don't need to maybe set up some software on my computer. I'm strong. I won't give in to lust or I won't give in to some other sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And so David had grown complacent. And several factors kind of came together that set up a recipe for disaster for David. All right? And, and they can set up a recipe for disaster in our own lives as well. And so I'm going to lay out three of them. Now, this recipe for disaster that's in David's life and we're going to talk about here, this, this is not exhaustive. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just what happens to be in this passage. 
And so we're going to talk about these things. We could rattle off a gazillion other things that can add in. But these are the three from this text. And so let's talk about them a little bit. Three of them. I'll give them to you ahead of time. A recipe for disaster here for David and for us in time. Blessing, boredom, and being stupid. Blessing, boredom, and being stupid. And so talking about this blessing, David was a blessed man. I mean, you look here, by the time we get to chapter 11, the kingdom has been established. Everybody loves David. Chapter 10, he's just won a slew of battles. And so things are good. Things are really, really good. But as J.D. Greer writes, it may seem surprising to us that David's sin comes at a moment of extreme blessing. In times of adversity, sure, sexual sin is appealing. It acts like a savior, like an escape, something to give us the quick fix we think we need. But what's so dangerous about blessing? Well, folks, what's so dangerous about blessing is that so often when things are going good, we think we don't need God. We stop praying. We stop really watching our hearts and we grow conceited. Look at what, I mean, I'm just... I'm owning this life. I am just, you know, beast mode. I, this, I am killing it. Like, man, I'm doing, so, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. I don't really need God. And we might not say it out loud like that. We just live it that way. I don't, we act like we don't need God. And so this was David. He was a blessed man. And in all of chapter 11, you never hear a word about God until the last verse. David never contemplates anything of God through all this. But in his blessing, he was also bored. I mean, verse 1, he's supposed to be out at battle with his troops. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, like that's where he's supposed to be. But where is he? He's back at the palace in his PJs, eating popcorn, watching daytime TV. And he's bored. He's not out doing what he's supposed to be doing. David, the warrior, has become David, the lazy And friends, in the midst of laziness and boredom, sometimes we can be almost extra predisposed towards sin. Sexual sin and others. One author puts it like this. The way to successfully resist the enticements of this world isn't merely to have a strong will to say no. It's to be busy with a higher purpose. For many people, their lives are so empty, so pointless, so devoid of something more that the excitement of illicit sex or pornography promises a fulfillment they desperately crave. It's not always that sin is incredibly alluring. It's often that we're so unbelievably bored. And friends, that makes sense because we're not to live our lives on the sidelines. We're to be engaged. We're to be in the game. We're to be engaged in worshiping and enjoying God and leading others to do the same. And, and when we're living our life as God would have us, and we're, we're, we're living life, we're, we're doing ministry, we're seeking to lead others to do the same, sure, we, we can still sin, we can still fall. But when you are living life on mission, you'll find less space in your life for it. I mean, just a super practical example here. Would not David have found it harder to sleep with Bathsheba if he had been where he was supposed to be with his troops 50 miles away rather than at home, bored? 
And so being blessed, being bored, they not always are, but they can be recipes for disaster, but especially when you couple them with the third one, being stupid. Now you have a recipe for disaster. You're blessed, you're bored, and you're just being stupid because what David did is he put himself in a position to be tempted. He's wandering around on the roof, alone, late in the afternoon, a.k.a. at night, bored, just peering over at this rooftop and over at this rooftop because they were like the highest place. He's supposed to be gone so people can go take their baths on the roof. But he just have his bed. All right, what he's doing, it's the ancient equivalent to staying up late in the night in the dark, alone, bored, browsing the internet or Instagram or whatever app. Maybe not actively looking for something, but secretly hoping you just happen to stumble upon it. Friends, that's just being stupid. Truly. And you can take what I'm about to say too far and apply it to different or wrong things and become legalistic with it. But very often it's easier to avoid temptation than to resist sin in the moment. Now, you need to resist sin in the moment. Okay? You are going to be tempted in life. Period. Sexually and in other ways. It's going to happen. So you need to resist sin. Absolutely. Or or, or maybe it's gossip for you. And you're going to be faced with that temptation. And so you've got to resist sin in the moment. But if you're going to face that temptation in life anyway, then why are you going to go hang out with people in a place at a time when you know they are going to be gossiping? Why are you going to knowingly put yourself in a position to be tempted? Same thing sexually. Don't put yourself in a position where you know you're going to be tempted like David is. That's being stupid. It's playing Russian roulette with your soul. Don't do it. This is what David did. A man after God's own heart. Again, let this warn us. This is what he did. So look at verse 2 again. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. She's purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. So she's actually doing a religious ritual here. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, so not identified, an anonymous guy. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so what's happening in this moment is God is giving David a chance to escape. He's trying to wake him up because David inquires about this woman and some guy, again, anonymous to us, basically says to David, verse 3, David, I know what you're thinking. Don't do this. 
right? And Bathsheba is a human. She's not an object for your lust. David, she's a woman's, this woman is someone's daughter. This woman is someone's wife. David, would you want someone to treat your wife or your daughter the way you're about to treat this lady? And friends, struggling with pornography, perhaps, I'll ask you the same question. Would you want some dirty old man to look at your daughter the way you're looking at someone else's daughter? That person on the other side of the screen is a human being made in the image of God, not an object. Someone's daughter. And so this guy's basically telling David, don't do this. This is wrong. This is Liam's daughter. This is Uriah's wife. But David is unfazed and just in a horrific Rapid fire progression. Watch the verbs of verse 4. Look at it with me. So David sent messengers and took her. All right, there's force here. Whether this is political pressure or physical force, there's force here. Took her and she came to him and lay with her. He sent, he took, she came, he lay. Just fast. Brutal and blunt. We're given no emotions. We're given no thoughts. Just the acts. And we're stunned. Because this is at best sexual abuse. And at worst rape. And this was David. And so let this scare you a little bit about yourself. Don't think that you're some super strong person. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Take heed. Lest you fall. Right? Within each one of us resides Hitler-sized sins that can be exposed. I mean, this is our depravity. Can be exposed with the wrong situations, wrong timing, wrong circumstances. And so, have a healthy self-distrust of yourself. Have a healthy self-distrust of yourself. I do not like, distrust John or Chad. But we have covenant eyes on our computers. I won't stay in a hotel by myself. I won't eat breakfast or dinner or whatever with a lady by myself. Somebody might say that's really ridiculous and legalistic, Joe. Or maybe it's smart. Because I know I am a sinner and sin is strong. And so I don't trust myself. And there's a health in that. I don't know what it might be for you. It might be different. But I do think we're probably a little too trusting of ourselves. And a healthy distrust is a good thing. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so maybe you need some boundaries in your life. I don't don't know, but I know you need to be fighting. But David, rather than repenting here, rather than turning back to God when he realizes what he does, he just continues to spiral out of control. Because sin, and I want you to hear this, left unconfessed in the dark 
has a compounding effect. Like compounding interest is a great thing. Compounding sin happens and it's horrible. And it always have a compound left in the dark, unconfessed. It compounds. And so David gets word that Bathsheba is pregnant. He's terrified, not yet of God, but of people finding out about this. And so he starts manipulating the situation. He starts weaving a tangled web of lies to try to cover his tracks that leads all the way down to him eventually ordering the death of Uriah. Murder. And then from that point, David's life continues to unravel. His family starts to fall apart. The son that comes out of this will die. His other children will rebel against him, as we'll see in the weeks to come, all because of sin, because this is what sin does. It destroys. And listen, it can be forgiven. All right? That's the hope of the gospel, and we're about to talk about that. Praise the Lord, there is no sin that is too big for the cross of Christ. Praise God for that. But King David's sin, like all human sin, has consequences. Because we can't always undo the damage we cause when we willfully walk into sin. And so again, I encourage you, fight against it. Fight it. There's an old quote, I don't know who it originates with, but it says, Sin will take you, always take you, further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And so fight it for your own good, for your family's good, but most of all, for the glory of God, the one who, if you are in Christ, sought you and bought you, took the nails for you, fight it. Because it is shocking how easy it is for anyone to suddenly and fatally fall. And so we have to fight and not grow complacent. So that's number one. Be shocked. This is David. David. If David could do that, it makes me nervous about myself. And should. And so that's the first shocking thing. Be shocked at how easy it is for anyone to fall. But now let's look at the second shocking thing. Second shocking truth of this text, and it's about the grace of God. And so look at chapter 12. Read with me. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man. And the rich man was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to David, or said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he should restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are that man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. That's a kingdom. And if this were too little, I would have I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have, and note this. He doesn't say despise the word of the Lord anymore. Despised me. That's what sin is. And have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Actually, this is going to happen with one of his sons. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Broad daylight where people can see. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. And so just notice here, I mean, oh, that's chock full, man. But just notice here, like chapter 11, when you read chapter 11, who's the primary mover in all of that? This is Sunday school time. You can talk back. David. David's the primary mover. Everything. David's doing stuff. He's making this happen. He's making this happen. He's doing this. He dominates the action. You get to chapter 12, and who's the driver? Who's at work here? Who's pursuing David? Who's crushing David? And who forgives David? God does. So chapter 12, God comes on the scene. He's not a passive bystander in this. And so be shocked at the grace of God here, all right? Be shocked at the grace of God. And we get our first picture of God's grace in the first seven words of chapter 12. And the Lord, the Lord sent Nathan to David. God did that. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And so these first few opening words here are describing to us the vigilance of God's grace. That he will not allow his servant to remain comfortable in his sin, but will ruthlessly pursue and graciously pursue and expose his sin, lest that servant settle down in it. And so you may succeed in unfaithfulness for a, a little while. That may happen. It does happen. But if you are Christ's, he will come after you in gracious but ferocious pursuit. He will come after you. Right? He will not leave you to himself. He will come after you. His grace is a pursuing grace. And so on the one hand, that is a very warm blanket to wrap around you. 
God will, if you are his, he'll come after you because he loves you. He won't drop you. He won't just be like, forget this guy. What has he done to me? I'm done with this guy. No, he will pursue you. But don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean his grace is just peaches and cream and everything's happy. Because while God's grace is pursuing, it also has a shattering or crushing function. Right? God's grace is crushing in a good, like good for you, it's good for you way, but painful way. Because God sends Nathan to David, and what does he do? He tells him a story about the guy stealing some other guy's beloved lamb, and David just goes nuts, right? He's furious. And then perhaps the greatest drop mic moment you are the man. And I think Nathan also says to us that we need to hear, you are the man. You are the woman. You are the boy. You are the girl. We are the sinners. And in that moment, David gets it. I mean, it's been months, right? The baby's been born. It's at least been a few months, even if the baby hasn't been born. And David hasn't gotten it until now. God has pursued him. And David, in that moment, gets it. And his soul is crushed. I mean, the gracious and loving, but utterly shattering and crushing conviction of the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he's broken. He's shattered in a good way. But painful way. What have I done? Have you ever been there? You did something. You said something. You sinned. All right, the thing that you said you would never do, or the thing that you said you would never do again, and you did it. And then it hits you. And the Holy Spirit, you know, hits you with the conviction of this. And it, it's, you're devastated because you see that apart from Christ, like who you truly are is revealed. And you just feel like you want to throw up. And you're ashamed. And you feel dirty. And you feel embarrassed. And you're mortified. What have I done? That's David here. And friends, while this is painful, realize this is a gift from God. He's leading you to repentance. That's what His crushing grace is for. It's for our good and it's for His glory. It gives us the ability to agree with God about what He says about our sin. Not just be sorry that we got busted, but it gives us the ability to to see our sin. Not just our actions, but to see them as sin. To see the recesses of our heart. And it's a great mercy from God because so often we're blind to our sin. We just don't see it. But when God convicts our heart of sin, He's opening our eyes to the reality of what we've done. Reality of who He is, because that's what makes what we've done a big deal. 
Not necessarily what we did, but who He is and His holiness and His majesty and His splendor and His glory and His might. And He's opening our eyes up to this and He's leading us to repentance. Repentance. Somebody says, what's repentance? Repentance is basically the inverse of sin. See, sin in its essence is turning our back on God and turning our heart to our enemy. And repentance is turning our back on our enemy and turning our heart to God. And so there's a turning function in repentance. And it's where we agree with God about our sin. We don't try to explain it. We don't try to excuse it away. We agree with God about what He says about our sin. And we grieve it, and then we decide to leave it, and we flee to Christ to cleanse it. That's repentance in a nutshell. If you want to see it in action, flip over to Psalm 51 real quick. So go to the right in your Bible a little bit. This is what Angela read a few, more than a few minutes ago. Like Psalm 51 is this moment in David's life. It's repentance. You know, they give these little headings at the top of uh, the Psalms. Like, you know, what they're dedicated to, whoever the author was writing it, what he's doing. You know, because Psalms are songs. They're the Old Testament hymnal. And so if you look at this one even. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is that moment. This is that I have sinned against the Lord. These are David's reflections on that moment. So listen to what he says. Verse 1. This is repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He goes to God. You are my only hope. I have blown it. I'm throwing, casting myself on you. Have mercy on me, O God. Verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. He owns it. He is not denying it. Against you, you only have I sinned. Well, he sinned against some other folks, but he knows ultimately his sin is the greatest affront is to God. And done what is evil in your sight. He's owning it. He's not excusing it away so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I deserve hell. I deserve punishment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This does not mean that Jesse's wife was in sin in conceiving David. It means that at the moment of conception, we are sinful. We're not born a blank slate. Might go good, might go bad. We are born with a sinful nature inherited from Adam and Eve. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth. So he's been talking about himself. Now he's talking about God. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. 
And I shall be clean. He's calling out Passover here. They use hyssop and paint it on the blood. And wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Hyssop also was a cure for leprosy. He's describing his sins in those terms. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So he's, he's asking for more than just forgiveness here. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And so he's pleading for more than just forgiveness. He's pleading for renewal. He's absolutely committed to being changed by God. Repentance is a changing. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me like it happened to Saul. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... So repentance should result in some things. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return return to you. Repentance should lead to evangelism. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice where I give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so God's grace pursued David and it crushed David in love and it returned him to the disposition that should mark all the children of God. A joyful yet broken and contrite heart before the Lord. And so feel in those moments where you fall, feel the weight of that. Be broken over it, grieve it, but don't stay there. Don't stay there. And yes, we agree with God about our sin. We don't excuse, we don't justify, we own it, we see it, we grieve it. But then leave it and flee to Christ. Run to Jesus. I mean, think if you know the Bible, Luke 15, story of the prodigal son, right? And the prodigal son, what does he do? He trashes his dad. He wastes and squanders all this wealth. And then you have these beautiful words. And when he came to himself... That's conviction. That's the Holy Spirit. When his eyes were open, he realized what was going on. What did he do? He went home. Even knowing everything he had done to his dad. Believer, don't ever be scared to go home. The father waits with open arms to receive you back to himself. And throw a party that his son, that his daughter has come home. He already knows your mess. Don't be scared to go back home. You're not surprising him. He knew it when he sent Jesus to the cross for you. And he still sent him to the cross for you. So run home to him. Because as weighty as the grievousness of our sin is, because we're sinning against the almighty, infinite, holy God of the universe, as weighty as the grievousness of our sin is, the grace of Christ is infinitely greater. And so in this broken world, we're going to slip up at times. 
We're going to fall. We fight it. We try not to. But there are days when you're going to fail. Whether they're in big things or what we call smaller things. Things that we often treat as respectable sins. They're still sins against God. But it's going to happen. It doesn't make it, doesn't mean, oh, we all do it, so it's all right. No, it's a sin. It is an affront against the God of the universe. There's going to be those days where like David or like Peter when he denies Christ three times, the rooster crows, you're going to betray Jesus. You're going to deny your Savior and you're going to sin against Him because all sin is against Him. But when that happens... Don't run from God and, and pretend like, oh, I've got to stay away. I need to do enough things. I need to punish myself enough and, and, and get things right. And, and then if I do enough penance and I do uh, enough good things, then maybe God will take me back. No, you remember the gospel. And you run home to Jesus who paid it all. Every drop of your sin has been paid for. I'm not saying consequences of your sinful action will suddenly evaporate. There may be consequences that happen. But God will forgive you. Because our right standing with God from the moment of salvation, or maybe you've been a Christian for years and years and years, still, your right standing with God and His love for you isn't based upon your saintly actions. It's based upon Christ's actions for you. He lived a perfect, sinless life. You didn't. He died the death you've been condemned to die for your sin. He took your place as your substitute payment in your place for your sin, bearing the wrath of God. And he rose again in victory. Giving you a gift you could never earn. Forgiveness. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. Do you see the goodness of God towards us? David does not deserve to be forgiven. These are major league things he's done. And God can forgive him on the basis of the one who would come from his own line, Jesus, a thousand years later. Reckon David's sins to Jesus. Reckons Jesus' righteousness back to David. And he can be forgiven. And so the grace of God, it is shocking. It doesn't make sense. I don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. But that's what makes grace, grace. It's undeserved. That's what makes the gospel good news. We don't get what we deserve. Jesus got it. And we get what he deserves. 
And so while there are consequences for our sinful actions, there's also forgiveness, friends. Come home to Christ. And in the midst of forgiveness, God so often even works good out of evil because He's a redeeming God. It's truly evil. It's not like, well, it's not too bad because God's going to do something good out of it. No, it's bad. But God works good because He has power to turn things on their heads as He does even here. Because peek down just for a second at verse 24 in chapter 12. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and she called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by David, I mean by Nathan the prophet, so that he called his name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. He called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. It, it literally means loved of the Lord. And so the one who would continue the line to Jesus came out of this mess. As Scotty Smith says, so often our failures are the gardens for God's mercies. What grace. What shocking, shocking grace. And so, yeah, be shocked at how easy it is for anyone to fall. But also be shocked at how radical the grace of God is. Come Thou Fount has two extra lines at the end of the passage I read that I want to include now. This should be our heart. And our song, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to wander. And so, save us from ourselves. And give us grace, Lord. And we praise you for the grace you've given us. Undeserved. Favor. Because of Christ. Help us to never take it for granted. In Christ's name, amen.